What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. And David, let's welcome our listener to yet another wonderful episode of Notes from an Artist. I love having an audience. Yes, I do too. And the audience could be listening to this on Cygnus, Cygnus Radio, www.cygnusradio.com, or they could be listening to it on our podcast. And David, you know our podcast is available on Apple, Amazon, Buzz, Sprout, and everybody loves Spotify. It's true, except for you and I, of course. Right, and just about everyone else we talk to it seems but you can listen to us on spotify and wherever podcasts are potted now david tonight our guest is an artist you heard but you don't know the name uh this is probably one of the reasons why you and i started such platforms as know your bass player and bass guitar channel radio and our guest is stanley sheldon he is a bass player he is from ottawa kansas and he still lives in that state and we talked to him uh, from his home state and he anchored stanley sheldon anchored probably among the two most influential guitarists of the 1970s one is a superstar and one sort of sunk into cult status that would be peter frampton we all know peter frampton from humble pie his great solo career and of course the late great tommy bolin who made seminal sides with billy cobham the james game deep purple unfortunately he died young from the rock and roll lifestyle but he would have been a superstar uh, had he lived stanley was the bass player on frampton comes alive and that is probably the seminal i'll use that word again live album of the 70s of at least the mid 70s along with the allman brothers Live at the Fillmore, Thin Lizzy Live, The Who Live at Leeds. Can you think of any other important 70s? Live oh, I think uh, in, in the Peter Franzen realm, we have to call Humble Pie Live at the Fillmore. How could I forget that? Uh, yes, Peter Frampton Live, uh, right, another a great influential. And then, of course, Sinatra at the Sands. Sinatra, wasn't that the 60s? I don't know. Yes, it was. But the thing about that record is most jazz schools, if you um, believe it or not, utilize that because the Count Basie Orchestra, which uh, all arrangements by Quincy Jones, is one of the penultimate live recordings of a big band. Wow. And what does the word penultimate mean, David? It means something like seminal. But is it seminal or is it seminal? I'm not sure. Yes, yes. Our reproductive... uh portion of the show anyway not only was stanley sheldon uh, a bass player with frampton and bolin and all those other folks he was a pioneer of the fretless bass in a rock and roll context along with your favorite bass player boz burrell of bad company uh kenny passarelli of course rick danko and friend of the show bill wyman yes indeed so uh yes we'll talk to the first it. fretless player in rock and roll Okay. At least go. that we know of. Well, I think you could say to say, yeah, Bill Wyman yanked the frets out of his famous bass in the early 60s. So he, he gets the nod for the first fretless bass player. Aside from Peter Frampton, you've heard Stanley Sheldon with Roger McGuinn, Lou Graham of foreign of fame. He substituted for Mel in Grand Funk Railroad. Mel Shack. Yes, he uh, did. And he enjoyed him. that very much. Yes, he talks about that. We'll get into that with him. He's also played with Delbert McClinton, Larry Carlton, Joe Bonamassa, Albert King, Sonny Landreth, Warren Hayes, Warren Zevon. He did guitar players like Stanley Sheldon. Uh, he was in a band called Ronin with Waddy Wachtel, Rick Morata, and uh, Dan Dugmore. So for you, those of you who read album 
credits, you know, those are studio heavies. Stanley's had a very diverse career. He is still on the bandstand with a band called Vinyl Machine, which is a, a repertory ensemble. And you know what else is interesting? Just like friend of the show, Tony Levin, um, Stanley is an early blogger. He um, liked to document his musical adventures online long before it was fashionable. So we've had two blog innovators, both Tony Levin and Stanley Sheldon, are both great bass players. Yeah, and I think at this point in time, it's no longer blog, uh, Tom. It's vlog because everyone's videoing it. Uh, so welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> welcome. We're coming, kicking and screaming to the 21st century. So let's get to our interview with Stanley Sheldon. And folks, stay tuned because directly after the interview, after we say our goodbyes and kiss each other, uh, there is a fabulous Stanley Sheldon uh, playlist which David has comprised, and it's all those artists we've mentioned and more. Here's Stanley Sheldon. Let's go. There he is, Stanley Sheldon. Hello, Stanley. Hi, Tom. How you doing? There's David to my left or your right or whatever it is. Can you guys, can we all see each other now? Yes, we can. Yes. You're in a, You're in the great state of Kansas? That's exactly right. Lawrence, Kansas, home of basketball. We invented it. You Jay went Hawk. to college hoop. That's right. Matter, I think I played the college in Lawrence. Yeah, well... And if I remember, if I remember... There was nothing open after our gig. We were starving till morning. <laughs> it's probably a Monday night. It's probably changed a lot in the last, I don't know when you were there, but it's. Oh, it had to be know, 40 years ago. It's and, like any college town, but back then it was pretty sleepy still. Yeah. By the way, Peter Barron says hello. Oh, cool. All right. Give him my best. Is, is, is Kansas a dry state? No, it's interesting though. Where I grew up just south of here is where. John Brown, the famous uh, abolitionist, murdered a family, and that's the Civil War broke out. They call up this borderline here between Missouri and Kansas called Bloody Kansas, and it's, this this is where the Civil War started, right here. Because wow. unbelievable! It was a fight over whether Missouri, whether Kansas was going to be a slave state like Missouri was. Wow! And we wow. we didn't want that. I, I was on the good side. <laughs> What do, now, you lived in New York, you lived in L.A. What made you go back to Kansas? I mean, obviously, that's where you're from. Well, you know, Tom, it's like I've lived in a few different places, like you know, L.A., New York. And then a few years back, maybe a decade, I moved to Nashville for a little while. And I right. went on the road. I, I was playing with Delbert McClinton. And, he, you know, you had to live there to get on the bus every Thursday night to go do his one gig a week. <laughs> so and then after that ended, Peter was in Nashville. Right, that's right. And yet, right. I had to get on the bus in Nashville there. But between Delbert and Peter, I decided I was just going to come back home to where I'm most, you know, I, it's where I grew up. I love it here. Yeah. You know, Joe Vitale, who is in, a, we're doing a project together right now, the great drummer Joe Vitale. Vinyl Machine. And, yeah. And so Joe has always lived in Ohio, where he's from, Kent, yes. you know, Kent State, Canton, Ohio. And so I'm kind of like Joe. You know, I just like to be at home. I'm comfortable here. Well, the cool thing is now you don't have to live in L.A. or New York or Nashville. You can live wherever yeah. you want. Yeah. That's so true. Back in the day, you know, we had to migrate yeah. if we wanted to get any kind of attention anywhere. <laughs> Right, right. And you guys were in Colorado. Well, David, let's talk about Stanley Sheldon. What a career you've had. Okay. He's a bass player. He's a composer. He's an educator. Not only has he worked with Delbert McClinton, but I have, let's see, my list, uh, Warren Zevon, Joe Bonamassa, Lou Graham, right? You did uh, mm -hmm. you did work with Warren Hayes, Albert King, Larry Carlton. You pinch hit for Mel Shackner and Grand Funk Railroad. Man, that's a 
That's some heavy. That's been right fun. <laughs> that's been really fun to play with with Don Brewer on drums is something to be. Wow, uh, you got to see it to believe it. I've guy. seen, yeah, yeah, and then of course Steve Luthiker, uh, Roger McGuinn. You did Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, one of the most important films of the 20th century, <laughs> David. You know, yes, I have a matter of fact, that's one of Fellini's favorite movies, by the way. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's Joe Fellini, not Joe not Fellini, Fellini, who lives down the block from him. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Joe. And of course, what's funny? No, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Stanley anchored probably the two of the most influential, among the most influential albums of my generation was Frampton Comes Alive, of course, and Tommy Boland's Teaser. You're in the right place at the right time. Now, Stanley, I have to thank you because I started off as a classical guitar player, and you can't meet girls playing classical guitar. Uh, at least I couldn't anyway. So uh, as the classical you guitar... You have trouble doing it playing bass. So, yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, that's another story. <laughs> but classical guitar is the same technique as the electric bass. And that was 1975-76. And I had to learn how to play electric bass. So what did I do? Got this album. And then, David, they had... Back in those days, they had a thing called the gatefold. Okay? I don't know if you remember... No seeds? Gatefold. No seeds in there, no. So, <laughs> But look. Look at this guy with his chest, his bare chest, his bass has no frets on it. And I was right. like, what, what the heck? That's is the that? way it should be, Tom. Is that right? Is that Stanley, it's very interesting because this record was pretty much pre-Jocko. The world didn't know about Jocko then. So the fretless bass was really off the radar. But it was you, it was Kenny Passarelli, and Boz Burrell were all playing fretless bass. What the Don't hell? Don't forget right. And Freebo. Okay, yes, got to get Freebo in there. And the um, first the, the first bass player I saw using one was a few years prior to that. You know, when I when we did Comes Alive, Jocko, you know, released he was released that first weather he became the bass player in Weather Report right, that same seventy right. six. Yes. So I I I knew about him, but he was like a like the pinnacle of what a fretless player could do. I mean, Jocko right. to to this day, you know, he's he's still considered like the greatest ever mm -hmm. on electric bass, and I I sure do. There's some others that have come along. I forgot where I was going with that, but anyway, oh yeah, Rick Danko was the first bass yes, player. Yes, right, right, of course, yeah. with a fretless. Yeah, that ampeg. Yep. That's right. Now, well, it's an interesting thing, uh, Stanley, because both you and I purchased fretless bases in 1969. What was your reason for doing it? It was just one of those things. Fender issued it that year, I believe. You know, that's the first year it was issued. And I, it was the first time I think I'd seen one hanging on a rack other than, you know, Ampeg did have one earlier, but it was a little bigger. It was more like a baby bass. Right. And I, I, I have a baby bass that I use for salsa gigs. You know, it's like an upright built in Puerto Rico, modeled after that original Ampeg. But when I saw the Fender Precision fretless it was just so uh the look of it the feel of it i just had to have one and i didn't even know if i had the the ear to to play it in tune but i i started working at it you know with tommy boland early on and we were playing fusion music and it was a perfect vehicle for to apply to the fusion concept i had a lot more latitude with tommy than i did with peter with peter you know i really I just kind of played a note and just played it in tune and no sliding like you hear a lot yes. of fretless. Tony Franklin is really a great player. He's in another one. Boz, Boz Burrell, that's his last name, right, Burrell? Yes, yes. bad company, yeah. He and I were kind of contemporary, you know, doing the same thing. He didn't really 
he didn't elaborate much with the notes either. He just clipped, tried to play it in tune. <laughs> Chris Kimsey told me, Chris Kimsey used to laugh at me. He said, yeah, sometimes he wasn't. <laughs> but I think he, he had to struggle a little more than some. You know, and I was, you know, I have to be very focused when I play the fretless because I have to make sure it's in tune. And for that reason, I'm not playing it as much these days because it's just it's too demanding. I have to be so focused. That night of Frampton Comes Alive, you know, I was I I was used to playing the fretless every day for the last four or five years. Sure. sure. So I was really kind of used to it at that point. Yeah. Well, what made you go from, because if I recall, the original Precision Fretless was Rosewood. Right. I just had them both. I liked both the Maple and oh. the Rosewood. I was with Frampton. I could get any bass I wanted, basically. Sure, sure. And just came with dinner. So that was great. <laughs> but your career started off in 1966. You had a band called The Lost Souls in Ottawa, Kansas. What was it like to have long hair in 1966 in Ottawa? Well... <laughs> That's, that's funny. I got kicked off the wrestling team because I wouldn't cut my hair. And you've heard this story from a million musicians that yes. I get kicked out of high, high school. Tommy Bolin got kicked out of his high school at Sioux City when he was only 16, and that's when he moved to Colorado. Right. I didn't get kicked out. They just kicked me off the wrestling team. So I got to graduate in 68, and then, then I hightailed it for Colorado. My cousin and I were both playing in, in the Lost Souls. Right. My cousin Tom. Tom Stevenson, we kind of were the two members of that early garage band that went on to do stuff. My cousin, you know, we moved to Colorado together and played with Tommy Boland together. And then Tom Stevenson, my cousin, jumped ship and, and joined Joe Walsh and Barnstorm, who were also in Colorado. So it was, it was really incestuous back then in, in that town. I mean, everybody was switching players and switching chairs. And so Kenny Passarelli left Tommy and went and played with Walsh. And then my cousin, and that left a spot for me with Tommy. Right. And then my cousin left Energy and went to play with Joe Walsh. And later on, my cousin played with uh, Paul Butterfield and Rick Danko and Friends, you know, that oh, tour wow. they did. Yeah, my cousin yeah. was the keyboard player on that. So we were both. He was my cousin, and we were more like brothers growing up, our mother's sister's. Mm-hmm. And we grew up uh, just loving blues and boogie woogie style stuff, you know, because Tom's dad had a really great collection. So wow. we learned young. At what point did you think this was going to be a career for you? Well, I was a little uh, nervous about it, but I kind of decided right then and there after leaving, you know, graduating high school that mm-hmm. that, you know, much to my parents' dismay, you know, they and not that they discouraged me. They just were worried, you know, like, sure. really? And I was, you know, secretly worried, too. But I <laughs> I was too dumb to be scared when I moved. To, I moved to Colorado. That changed everything. I got mm. to meet Tommy Bolin. And that's when it after Tommy did that album with Billy Cobham from the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Sure, I mean, yeah. everybody wanted to just hang with him. Jeff Beck, Todd Rundgren. Sure. I was meeting you know, the cream of, of the of musical society in my mind. And of course, you know, when Teaser came out, actually, I think that was right when he joined Deep Purple. So you have to wonder if Tommy had stuck to his solo career, where he would have been. It's funny, you know, I uh, yeah, he probably would have been playing with Jocko. The two of them would have ended up you together. <laughs> I always imagined that because they were both kind of just, just so... Uh, fearless with their instruments mm-hmm. uh, tommy and jocko would have been a great combination you know jocko and pat Matheny were a great combination yes yeah know. that's right absolutely absolutely have you ever gone to tommy's uh museum his brother has oh i was gonna mention i right in that last little snippet we just were talking 
I wanted to mention, I tell the the timeline and the history on my website. It's all kind of been redone right. in the last last couple of months. Did you, have it you looks read good. it? It looks good. It looks good. Yeah, I saw the. I remember the old one. Yes, now it looks now it's sharp looking. Everyone go well, to StanleySheldon.com. I wrote some new timeline. Yes. You know, and kind of uh, enhanced it a little bit and told more detail about when I met Tommy and then went mm-hmm. Frampton. And, you know, did you read the part where I was recording Tommy's tracking at Electric Lady while right. we were sifting through Frampton Comes Alive? We, we didn't know it was going to be Frampton Comes Alive. Yet. I was doing that in Studio B, tracking with Jan Hammer and Narada Michael Wallen in Studio A. Wow. At the same, exact same time. So that's new on my website. I tell that story. Oh, all right. was, okay. Those were the two people that more than anybody else in my mind defined my career it was happening at the same time. What that's the way it goes, right? Why do you think they chose you as a player? What what did you bring to the table for Tommy and, and Peter? It's a good question. I think more than anything, I consider myself a, a good bass player. I'm not schooled, you know. I don't mm-hmm. you know, over the years I've learned pretty good, you know, the theory pretty mm-hmm. much. There's always more to learn with music, but I think what I brought to the table more than anything was my sense of time. I was always just locked in on where that one is. Yeah. And, and drummers really like that. And yeah. I got to play with 10 of the greatest drummers that have ever lived within about two years when John Siomas was having problems. The first person that was brought in was Gregorico, Sly and the Family Stone. Second, second was Andy Newmark. Third, Rick Morata. Four, Joe Vitale. Five, Jamie Oldacre. Six, Gary Malabar. I mean, the list just keeps going. That's and a I'm bunch like, of acts. God. <laughs> <Right? laughs> so I, I've been spoiled with drummers. I don't work around here because there's no drummers. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a funny thing. Yeah, we had a um we interviewed um Rudy Sarzo and he was I met Rudy finally a couple years ago. Yeah, he's a very good guy, smart, really smart. But he was talking about so when he was on the road with Ozzy, he would use a fretless on some of the tunes because he could tune it down. It took four months for Ozzy to realize there are no frets on this bass. <laughs> so this is a preamble to an interesting question. What was Peter's vibe to you? You know, you, you spent time with Greg Ridley. I was actually in one of the later versions of Humble Pie, and I had to play a, a, a fretted bass. But what was Peter's reaction to you using fretless? Was there any hesitation at first? It was actually his his request. Before I auditioned with him, and, and the reason I got the audition is because Peter had heard the, the new Barnstorm album with Kenny playing fretless on Rocky Mountain Way and other tracks. And he... He offered Kenny the gig, and Kenny was either still with Walsh or about to go play with Elton. Right. All right. right. He'd been asked to play with Elton. When he got in in Elton's band, they asked him to please put the fretless down. (laughs) But but he was using it, and Peter saw it, and it was just a thing back then, you know. Fretless bass, anybody that could play one, they figured the guy had to be pretty good because he can play it in tune. And that's what Peter told me when I auditioned with him at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I pushed my little Vibraverb amp up the steps to the elevator on Wilshire Boulevard. He was about, you know, 4.15 or something. So I, I took my fretless bass and we sat down. You know that song, Money? I'll give you a bone. Sure. Yep, yep. Take you bone. It's got a slide in it. You know, yes. Right in the song. So Peter, I really was looking for a guy that could play fretless. So 
when I went to his room, I brought the fretless and we played that song and we also played a little bit of something else. Baby, I love your way or something. He goes, okay, here's the, my three solo albums. Here's, I'm going to the dentist in three weeks. You have three weeks to learn all the songs on the three solo albums. And we won't know until you play with John. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Wow. It was great. I I had three weeks. Yeah. That's not, that's not too bad to learn three records. But I noticed, I mean, again, as a young player, you know, and I had to devour this album. And, you know, when you were playing high school dances, you had to know every song on Frampton Comes Alive. And you play with a very uh, rhythm and blues feel, which you really didn't hear that much in that type of music. Were, were some of your influences the, the R&B greats, the Motown guys, the, the Muscle Shoals guys? Yeah, more than ever. And still today, I'd say Jamerson is where I, yeah. I learned how to play. James Jamerson. Yeah. I, I still copy his style. You know, I, I play with that raking finger style. Right, the hook. So I can get that. I get that percussive. But, you know, I've gotten pretty good at it, at channeling <laughs> Jamerson. But he's my guy. And he yeah. was Jocko's guy, too. He was everybody's Jocko. guy, yeah. You got to go through Jamerson. <laughs> yeah, so Jamerson more than anyone. And McCartney, Paul. We um, uh, interviewed Jerry Jamad a few weeks ago. And, oh, cool. you know, he had that very influential video. Uh, With him of, and Jocko. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So we chatted about that a little bit. Uh, very interesting guy. And, of course, Jocko yeah, was... credits Jamad as his main influence. And then when you really dig into it, you go, yeah, I could hear that. Yeah, he, there's a lot of Jamerson in there, too. Yes. Yeah. I think, didn't Jerry study with uh, Jamerson or no? I'm thinking of uh, uh, someone else. But, um... you know, I, Chuck Rainey's another one. You know, he's yeah. another guy that he's one of my favorites. And... But you also hear a lot of Rocco Prestia in Jocko. You know, I was just thinking the exact same thing. I mean, Rocco is another guy that I, when I'm warming up, I like to play some of those you know 16th note feels because he gets me up to speed real quick yeah exactly exactly of course uh the the new guy on the block obviously is joe dart who borrows a little bit from jocko and uh rocco presti and it's good to see that he's turning young folks on have you heard i'm sure you've heard uh richard bona oh yeah of course yeah 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 he's unbelievable right and and he sings (laughs) That was one of the things about Jack Bruce that amazed me is later in his life when he just started um, playing fretless exclusively, uh, he was um, singing along with it. Jesus Christ. He was great. I mean, such a great bass player. You know, that live Cream album, it kind of changed the world, especially the live one. But he was great. Yeah, Peter and got his first solo album was pretty amazing as well. Songs for... Right. uh, He was a jazz player, right? Yeah, yeah. For you and I, we grew up, we're just a couple of years apart, but Tom's the young one. So, yeah, you know, he's talking about Frampton Comes Alive, where you have to turn it up right side up, though. <laughs> yes, sorry. Thank you. That's it. There you there go. You go. <laughs> the the folks like you and I, you know, there, there was that Humble Pie live at the Fillmore, the Almond Brothers live at the Fillmore with Barry Oakley. He would have been an interesting player on Fretless, too, I think. Sure. Trying to think who else. Oh, another one of my favorites that I, I can't leave out is D. Murray. When it was the Elton John Oh, trio. yeah, 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 yeah. D. Yeah. Murray was playing fretless bass. Yeah. So he, he was really a major impetus for me to, yeah, I can go ahead and get one. I can do yeah. that, too. Yeah, 111770, yeah. that, that is just such a remarkable album. I've actually had contact with D's widow. We've been trying to do these little campaigns to get him recognized in the sideman category for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He um, was he was really a great bass player. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, that you're contemporary. Was it alcohol with him? Do you think? 
No, he died of cancer. He died of cancer, D. Actually. Could it be liver cancer? Uh, well, that I don't know. That's a good question. I don't I don't know any details either. <laughs> but when you do other session work, like you did Warren and Joe Bonamassa, what, um, what's your approach to these guys? Because they have quite a bit of a history behind them. Do you go and research the bass players that they've done, played with, or, or, or do you just, is it more about bringing your own thing to the table? Well, I like to bring my own thing, but I also like to be very secure in the fact that I know the song and that I own it, that I've learned the parts of whoever played. Like when I, we did the Warren gig, it's when I met Waddy Wachtel. I'd right. already, I'd played with Rick Murata before. Mm-hmm. And we had, that was Warren's, it was really a great band. Me, Waddy. That was Ronan, Rick, yeah. Yeah, basically it was, that's how Ronan came together when we all mm-hmm. met playing the on the Excitable Boy Tour. Right. So when I learned those songs that on that album, which every track is is a gem, on it's like a greatest hits album, pretty much. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. You can hear the whole thing straight through, <laughs> and that was a lot of that was uh, Bob Glob, who's yeah, a friend, right. masterful bass player. So I just you know I learned a lot of his parts. Kenny Edwards had played on that record too. Linda's bass yes. player. Yep. Yep. And, you know, Waddy, I think, was writing a lot of the bass notes for some of the st- things that Kenny played on Tenderness on the Block, you know, just okay. really kind of basics, really well-written lines. Right. So it was all it's all kind of laid out when I got there. I just put my little feel to it, you know, mm-hmm. when we did. There are some great live recordings of that band playing at the Roxy one night. We got the whole set, and it sounds amazing. I yeah. need to get that onto my website. <laughs> right, I think Warren did a live record, but I think that might have been a couple of years after the, um, uh, yeah, the tour you guys did. He's he went through a lot of different players between yeah. then and now, but he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too. Yeah, this is true. for what it's worth, yes, exactly. You know, when Frank Becomes Alive comes out, came out, and of course, teaser, there was a a platform known as FM radio. That's how we used to hear music. I don't know, if, David, do you remember FM radio? No. I've heard about that thing. (laughs) What are your thoughts, Sheldon, on streaming now? Because when I think of the records you played on, I always think in terms of an album, start to finish. And now we live in a world of playlists. Do you think the album format is still relevant in the 21st century? Well, it really isn't. But I think to people of a certain age, like you and me, us guys, you know, we still That's three of us. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes we, I like to put on a whole side, you know, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I still enjoy it. You know, if it's a a record, like, you know, whatever it might be, Steely Dan, whoever, Mm -hmm. if it's a great record and every, every song is great. You don't want to hear just one. You want to hear a whole side maybe. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, you know, uh, our, our show, one of the obstacles of a lot of our satellite music now and internet radio is you're only allowed to play four tunes per artist. Really? So it gives us a lot of leverage with you. We can, you know, <laughs> we got a lot of stuff. But the, the point I'm, the point I'm making is, that you said it earlier. Oh, you can listen to the Warren Zeon, Zevon record from beginning to end. Well, we used to think like that. We would yeah. listen to records. So sometimes when I'm listening to the radio, um, satellite radio, you want to hear the next song. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're used to hearing <laughs> here, there, everywhere. And do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you have it in your head. You've memorized what's what's coming up next. And also, it was a whole gestalt thing. You'd have the album cover in your hand, reading about it, you know, who's playing on each track, and it was just right. pouring over this. I mean, I, I really miss those days of yeah. studying, studying, you know, everything about a record. Yeah, yeah. 
great artwork, great everything. Tom, yeah. did you know about albums? Uh, you're m younger than I. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> this was my record collection. Well, speaking of, well, let's let's raise the bar a little bit. You know, um, Ringo and Paul are going back in the studio, and they're going to AI John Lennon and George Harrison. What what are your thoughts on AI now? I mean. It's interesting. We, David and I were talking. There's a guy on YouTube called Nothing Is Real, and he has been AIing Beatles. He's been putting George Harrison's voice on an Oasis track. He had John Lennon singing, uh, no, uh, Paul McCartney singing Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, whereas AI is going to be, uh, you know, a, an artist unto itself. Now, I think what McCartney is doing, from what I've read, is now it's easier to get John Lennon's voice off the cassette that they have because that was the technology they have. I but. think, you know, it's if Paul McCartney makes a record and they, evidently they're going to be able to simulate John's voice and Paul will probably write some melodies for him and right. it'll be John's voice. It'll probably be magnificent. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think everybody that uses it, I don't think it's going to turn out so great, but it could. I mean, yeah. it could go a lot of different directions but i think what mccartney's going to do may be a trendsetter and kind of set the bar yeah i'm looking, I'm looking for an article right now tom and, and sheldon where i think it was the the grammy association saying that they are not allowing i can't find it here oh well they're not allowing, they're not allowing ai to be utilized so I guess there'll be no Grammys anymore. They think it's cheating, I guess. <laughs> not not to confuse it with auto-tune, which, of course, is not cheating. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, yes. you, you, you come from the days of analog recording when, you you know, you had to be a proficient player. I mean, Pro Tools, you know, yes, it's nice to be able to record an album in your living room. But when you went into the studio, how did you handle the pressure? Because, you know, you had to cut your you had to get it in two or three takes because the, they had to leave the other tracks over for the horns and the vocals. Like I say, man, I was lucky. I got to do the, the few yeah. records I the, with the greatest drummers ever. And, mm. you know, we didn't believe it or not, guys, on some records we did use it. But on those, Frampton Comes Alive, uh, the Tommy Bowen teaser album, we never used a click track. Well, you know, everybody was hired because of their sense of time. Yeah. And John Siomas, I gotta add, you know, had had an exquisite sense of time, and we never needed a click track with John. Yeah, yeah. Even on the, uh, the studio albums, you know. I played with John too. I I think some really some of his best work was that first Buzzy Linhart record. That's a great record. I'm glad you <laughs> isn't it? Tommy Boy Luthra. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I loved that record, and then. John, when he when you hear him on "Hello, It's Me" with Todd Rundgren, I mean, it's right. an amazing track, largely because of the drums. But the whole track is incredible. Yeah. But listen to it again. Listen to John's feel. His simple yeah. work. It's it's exquisite. Yeah, and and that's something that's really very very obvious in the Franken comes alive. The way he hits the bells of the cymbals. Uh, yeah, he and I, man, I I really miss John, and I got to play with a lot of drummers because of his problems mm -hmm. but uh he was one of a kind and every drummer uh, you know that came in after him knew it well especially because peter was asking all these great <laughs> drummers just play what john can you play like john did <laughs> and usually they just get pissed off gregorico lasted about two weeks andy newmark one gig uh Parada lasted a little longer vitaly probably lasted longer than any, any yeah. peter but you know it, it even though because i think 
the time period that I played with him, he was really, he hit it, but he was definitely having issues. He still played great. Yeah. You know, he, he was high most of the time. He always was high. And, you know, I'm joking about it, but so was I. Yeah. And uh, on Frampton Comes Alive, even. I'm almost glad I didn't know we were recording that. I tell that story, too. Peter had hired the Wally Hyder remote truck. Right. And I I was I was in my sweet spot, you know, high as a kite. And I just, I didn't even, I don't think any of us were thinking about the fact that we were making a record. We were too concerned. It was our first headline gig. It went, you know, that gig at Winterland was our Peter's first headline spot. Bill Graham gave it to him. And so we were just kind of focused on doing a good show. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we just caught lightning in a bottle that night. Yeah, it's interesting how the band swings. I mean, it's, you know, some of the performances, you know, you, you can hear the push and pull between the band, but you they it, it was really luck. I mean, you just caught you guys on a hot night. Did you did you ever think that when when that record came out that it would have the impact that it did? I was trying this is no story I tell. I was the guy that was advising Peter not to do a live album. <laughs> <laughs> Said we gotta go in the studio, man, make a really polished <laughs> That was my advice. <laughs> he didn't listen to me much after that. All right. Note to self do not, do not take career advice from Stanley on, on recording. <laughs> but, but you know, Peter had experience with live albums, and D'Anthony was his manager with Humble Pie. Right. Rocking the film. So yeah. he'd done yeah. it before. Yeah, it's amazing that he caught lightning in a bottle twice. But I think the problem with Frampton Comes Alive, it was so damn big. And it was so many years in the making that, you know, they just wanted him to repeat a, a, another record the, the next year. And you just can't. That's But that's how the business was in those days. You had to put out a record a year. Well, you know, unfortunately for Peter, and he, he tells the story better than I, because he's yeah. the one that it affected more poignantly. But it was so successful. Largest selling live album in history. It set a new trend. And how do you follow that? So he tried with I'm and You, and then he got a car accident. He couldn't play, and then he made that horrible movie, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, now, you, you, you tell a story on the website where you advised him against Sergeant Pepper. Now, there you go, David. He's redeemed himself because that would have been good career. <laughs> he should have listened to all me and Bob Mayo and John Samuels were all three times. Peter, please don't do it. You're not an actor. But he redeemed himself in, in what was it, Spinal Tap? Was, oh, no, not Spinal Tap. What was the movie? Um, the Cameron Crowe movie, right? Was oh, that one's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that Peter was redeemed movie. himself with that one. And he tells Absolutely. that story. He goes, I was involved in the worst rock movie ever made and <laughs> the best one. <laughs> That's it. There's a balance there. <laughs> well, interestingly, Peter's hitting the road today. Is his first gig. Yeah, that's amazing that he's... Uh, he's he's out for the summer. Right, right. How's he feeling? I think he's he's just lucky that he can his fingers aren't as affected as some of his like leg muscles a, a little. It's hard for him, I think, to stand. Now he's going to sit down and perform. Well, that, I'm kind of curious because he did on his last tour over to right. he was doing he he went back to Europe to make up he uh, rain checks because okay. of COVID. Right. So he sat down for that entire tour, and so did everybody in the band in, in solidarity, which is kind of mm. cool. Yeah. Well, uh, I know. Um, Peter Barron was was talking to me. I'm actually going to be you on <laughs> July 7th and 8th at some uh, oh, Middleton New York Festival. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's okay. I I I don't mind. I am using a rosewood fretless, so there's there's a little bit of a difference there. But he said that uh, he was at um, John's funeral, and Peter was there, 
Peter Frampton. And uh, are you talking about John Reagan? John Reagan, yeah. yes. We had him yeah. on the show. Yeah, we had John on the show. Yeah, John was a great guy. I miss yeah. him. A true great soul. But apparently Peter was walking with a cane. Mm. Yeah, you know, I've seen him do that. To tell you the truth, guys, I haven't seen Peter much. It's been since about 2017, you know, and we went our right. separate ways. But I always follow what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's sometimes with a cane, but his fingers, I guess, are okay still. It's it's his long muscles that got affected more than anything with this rare disease he has. David, you will be paying homage to to Stanley's work on on uh, Frampton Comes Alive. But what about the the stage wear, David? Can you? Can no, you... no, I will not. <laughs> no kimonos. No kimonos. No kimonos. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, kimono. no kimono. <laughs> yes, no, no kimono. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, hey man, they were hip back then, Everybody. and they were comfortable. Oh, they sure, were sure. Yeah, you know, I even had platform shoes, but I won't wear them either. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you guys heard about the the Humble Pie Legacy tour? Was I was on the last part of it, and was about, I guess yeah. your guy Jim's um, singing lead. He got a, a new a, a new unit, I think. Well, he's he's the, our singer in our band Vinyl Machine. It's the same singer, yeah, right. Jim Stapley. Yeah. So he's going to do the Humble Pie Legacy singing, and uh, hopefully, you know, our band Vinyl Machine. We've got a roster of hits that's really fun to play. You know, yeah. Tell us about that. What, what, how did that come together? Well, Joe Vitale and I got on the horn and we were just talking because Waddy and those guys had a, have a band called The Immediate Family. And they, right. play, yes. the yeah, hit, they play the hits of James and uh, uh, Henley and the people mm-hmm. they recorded with, Warren. They do some Z-Von song. Right. So Joe and I just said, hey, we can do the same thing, man. And we can get a, a singer that's even a stronger singer, maybe. So right. we got Jim. We asked, you know, we went through a few guys before we found Jim Stapley, and he's perfect. He's British. He's a little younger than the rest of us, so he's yeah. got good frontman chops. And Joe Vitale Jr. is in the band. But for the songs, and we have Dwayne Shaqua. He's not right. that well known, but he played with uh, Glenn Fry and McCartney on one little tour, I think. So we have a, a lot of Eagles, Crosby, Stills, Nash. You know, we do Life in the Fast Lane. We do uh, Southern Cross. We do uh, Mr. Soul. We do, you know, we can do the Buffalo Springfield because uh, Joe was the drummer in that incarnation. Right, sure. When, when Neil left after three shows, remember? So we're doing Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills, uh, Eagles, Frampton, uh, Faces, because Stapley played in the Faces with Kenny Jones. Oh, right. The last version of it with Rick Wills, I guess it was. Right. Exactly. Around that time. Yeah. So Jim Stapley, he's kind of the sin qua non in in our band because he can sing all these songs. The set list is really fun. Great songs. Now, are you going to be coming east? Well, hopefully we've got an agency, but they're having trouble selling it right now. We may have to change our name. I'm not sure. There's a Vinyl Kings out of Nashville that Session okay. guys doing doing the same thing. It's a hard sell because mainly because we are not a tribute band. Right. Uh, it might be easier if we were because those tribute bands are just they're the shit right now. I mean, oh, I was gonna. That's what I was gonna say. Well, there's the trademark bands and the tribute bands, and these tribute bands are pulling down like serious money in in. In it's Vegas, the biggest market the because they can do it for a little cheaper than, you know, the big names. Yeah, yeah. So they're, it's a huge market now. But so you see what I'm saying? We're a tough sell because we're not a tribute band. We're the guys that actually played on the That's on what the I'm saying. <laughs> You're the but, real guys. But, the, but it's hard to get that across, you know, yeah. in a name. Here's Tell me what you think of this name. X-Boss. 
ex-boss. Okay, what what, what's the connotation? Oh, we're, they're, playing, they're, we're playing the songs of our ex-bosses. Oh, okay, I get it. All right. So you didn't get it right off the bat. I didn't get so it right off the bat. We need a new I name. Think I think. I'm Tom, gonna... did you freeze? No, I didn't freeze. Oh, it's did... obvious. It's obvious. It's, it's like they're playing the music of their ex-bosses. Okay. My only problem with that name is I got it. Tom didn't get it, and I think a lot of folks won't get it. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's been. I've I've asked a few friends, you know, just like we just did as an experiment. Yeah. So I think yeah. we need something more obvious than vinyl machine. Just for me, it's okay, but not great. That name. Yeah. Well, what does Jeff Gans do, David? Um, the Hitmakers, isn't that his band? The right, Hitmakers? that's the Hitmakers. Then but course- that's bullshit too, really. You know, that's lame. The you know what it is, guys. We've we've got something that I think it's going to sell eventually. We have to build it, and right. we want to we want to do the corporate market. That's where it's going to be our cash yeah, cow. Yeah, sure. And we once we get the first corporate gig for decent money, where we can all fly in and do it, then I think word will start getting around of who's in this. I band. think you'd be better off, um, Sheldon, doing something that is reminiscent of rock and roll fantasy camp, only because that's really what when you go to a corporate event. You're giving everything except the ex-boss. So it, it's it's a high cachet. You might want to think in terms of that. Well, we tell stories, too. We tell vignettes about our bosses. Yeah, okay. So that's another plus. You know, it's really fun. We we did one gig in Ohio, in Cleveland. Okay. Uh, to get to kick it off. And it was we sold out a little theater that the Vitalis, where they live in, in Canton, mm-hmm. you know, in Akron. And so we sold it out and we we rehearsed we were ready and it came off pretty well and we told a few stories you know a, a little spiel in between a couple of the tunes you know vitality wrote life's been good yeah basically so that's in our repertoire rocky mountain way so we tell the stories a little maybe you should yeah. be the the elder statesman what is it like to be an elder statesman now you were the young hotshot guys and now i kind of dig it yeah <laughs> as, long, as long as i'm still healthy you know isn't that the amazing thing about the music industry is that you think when you're in your teens and 20s, ah, I'll be done around 30, 35. At least. And here we are, healthy, maybe not as wealthy, but wise. <laughs> well, you guys, were among the fortunate few. Anybody our so. age, and Tom's a little younger, right? Uh, yeah, I'm the young chippy. I'm 63. I'm the, I'm the kid. We got a decade Actually, yesterday was his birthday. Look Happy at that. birthday. Thank you. Me, Paul Belated. McCartney, and Carl Radle, although those guys sold more records than I did. But, yes, it is. We're noticing that it's great to see artists. Even the Stones are still out there. You know, Sir Paul is out there. Van Morrison is out there. Like you know, It gives you know. me hope as a player, as long as I can stay healthy. The odds are increasing that I can get work because it's a diminishing uh, roster of people that can do certain gigs. You yeah. Know? Yeah, it's there's it's getting smaller every day. I'm ready to play. Yeah, we'll 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 promote it. Uh, But it's it was good to see Tony Levin back on the road with uh, Peter Gabriel. Oh man, unbelievable! Tony's he's I've always worshipped him from from a you know put him on a pedestal because he is he's that great. Yeah, we had him on the show. We had him on the show as well. Let me throw this question: We David and I did a bass for him recently. David, who do we have? We had Ron Carter. We had uh, Benny, Gary Carr. We had Gary Carr, the great classical player. We had Dave Swift, who you may know from Jules Holland, later with Jules Holland. He's been on our show a few times. Um, and who else? I think we had Larry Grenadier. Oh, we had um, Benny Rico. Oh, God. 
Larry Grenadier is one of my all-time favorite jazz players, man. Oh. The stuff he Brad Meldow, get out oh, of yes. here. Oh, yeah. Get, you we should had, cut, uh, check out um, Larry's solo record. The Gleaners. I will do that. I'm yeah, oh, it's over. remarkable. It's called The Gleaner. Who did I see? I saw him with Brad Meldow. Well, you know, yeah. we, we had a very interesting conversation with him during COVID. He did a solo performance from the Village Vanguard. Now, The Gleaner is, is a solo bass record. And we asked him about the prospect that can streaming concerts be viable platforms, sort of a hybrid between the record or the streaming service and the actual live performance. We also had on our show um, Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone from The Zombies, who did a streaming show from Abbey Road. And it was cool as a fan here in America to go inside Abbey Road. And, wow, yeah. You know, The Zombies were able to bring an orchestra into Abbey Road to do some of their Oracle Odyssey and Oracle where they couldn't afford to do that on the road. It's too expensive. What are your thoughts on that about streaming, streaming concerts? You think that's going to come, you know, be a viable hybrid between the two? I think it, it's, there's a good likelihood of that. Yeah, happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost inevitable. It looks like um, with the state of the art being what it is, it's easy to stream it out and just do it live like that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's um, getting more and more expensive to tour. I mean, obviously, with COVID restrictions and other restrictions, put a band right. out on the road isn't cheap anymore. Well, and that's why these uh, these tribute bands are, are making hay, because yeah. they can go out for a, a tenth of the price that Elton yes. John goes out for. So right. people are thinking, hey, that, he'll play Elton songs and people won't know the difference. <laughs> and it's. Sadly, that's a large percentage of the audience doesn't give a flying brick, <laughs> you know. If they if if the journey singer is the real guy or not, you know right. they just don't care. And with the foreigner, not one original member. Thank you very much. That's right. So I don't know the tribute bands are. I don't think I I want to be in a tribute band, but I kind of like the, our concept. And who knows? Maybe we we can do our gig and stream it. I don't know. I, right now, I would just like to get a couple of gig corporate gigs and just go out and keep playing. You know, hopefully, I'll get to do a couple more grand funk shows depending yeah. on mel mel's healthy yes uh, he, he's he's down to four packs a day so he's <laughs> doing better <laughs> well i gotta tell you my dog yeah, brewer story tell I gotta tell you, okay you Ron. tell yours and i'll tell you what all right, all right. so i was living actually rick morano was living in the building as well 68th and broadway the dorchester tower who else was living in that denny sewell was yes. living in the building and so it's randall's island pop festival and, oh, God, it's got to be 69. So I walk in the lobby, and there's this guy with a giant afro, or in his case, you know, whatever it was, like this, <laughs> nodding out, because Terry um, Knight lived on the 29th floor. So who knows who else was there, but Brewer was nodding out in my lobby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those guys are so great. got to show you picture maybe you'll be able to see it can you see this, this photo oh yeah there you are well so yeah. that's what brewer looks like now he's still got you know his golden locks have gone gray or uh -huh. it used to be dark he's a powerhouse still on drums i i don't think i've ever had as much fun playing with a drummer in a rock format wow uh -huh. than brewer because i'm used to pushing you know my drummer whoever i'm playing with mm -hmm. i like to be the guy that pushes yeah. A little bit. So it breathes back and forth. And usually it really bugs me if a drummer can't hold it back. 
Well, I like them to I like them to hold me back, and th- then you get that tension. But yeah. with Brewer, it's just the opposite. He leads that fucking band. I freaking band. <laughs> yeah. Can I say that on this? Sure, it's, it's internet. Radio. Yeah, it's, it's, right. <laughs> it's um, internet. Anything goes. Yeah, normally I say that a lot more frequently that word, but it's just Don Brewer is he's unbelievable. You guys have seen him play, right? Yeah, of course. Oh, I sure. saw him back in the day. Yeah, recently. Not recently. Not recently, no. Back in the day. Well, he used remember that 20-minute solo he used to do? Yeah, yes. T-N-U-C. Right. Yes, he, just, he just had to stop doing it up until last year. He had some heart surgery. So yeah, it right. was okay. recommend, recommended that he not do that 20-minute solo anymore. Because he would put everything into it. Just like he did when he was nineteen years old. Yeah, and it, it's it's a great band. Max Carl front and that's that's how I got in because Max yeah. Carl and I played with Tommy Boland together. Max just lives up in Omaha, just an hour, two hours okay. north of here. All right, and, and of Max course- is. I'm just saying he's he's one of my dearest friends. So when they needed a bass player, Mel hadn't missed a gig. In 49 years so i got to come in and play with him for three months and then i got to do it again this year just a couple months ago he got covid so i got to go all right i got to go do three gigs again kind of a challenge playing mel's lines because they're really the foundation of the song yeah you know traditional they're not traditional bass lines they're not traditional bass parts and he plays with a pick but when I first started listening to the notes he was playing, and I think this is what Max thought he, about recommending someone to fill in for Mel, because they could, they were at their wits' end. They didn't know sure. who they were. So Max said, yeah, I know someone that can do it. So Max must have heard, whether you guys know it or not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point it out. Mel listened to James Jamerson a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he attacks with a pick the same notes that... We feel it exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It's just we we attack it differently. Okay. Me me with a, my finger funk style, but I learned a lot. I I really had fun learning his notes. Yeah. They're similar. They're similar to what I would play as well. Yeah. Well, if you think about those first two albums, it, it's really soul rock. Yes. Exactly, know? and that's what it, I, I loved, and that's why. I'm glad Max was pressing it enough to say, "Hey, Stanley could do that. He comes from that same kind of background." Yeah. Now, David, David plays a six string and we've done some shows together, bass duet, and you graduated to the five string. You're, you're yeah, five's on the... me. I, I don't really solo up high like some of those guys do, but I love having the low, the low notes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have a D tuner on my low B, so I can actually go down to a low A and then a low G. And I have some equipment that can reproduce that. I mean, it's it's not something for, you know, general consumption in a band, <laughs> but as a last note, you can make your audience shit. Yeah. <laughs> anything, anything lower than that B, you know, even B flat or A, you're not really hearing a note. You're just feeling. Right. Exactly. Feeling the room shake and you're hearing a rumble. Do not yeah. try this at home. Well, the nice thing about the five string is obviously you don't have to drop tune. You don't have to do the drop D. Plus, you can move uh, on the fretboard more horizontally, which is a little bit more. You can you can do a little bit more. You know, I've I'm, got a lot of different bases, but I I fell in love with my Warwick five string threaded. Yeah, and that's the one. It's been my workhorse base for all the gigs I do. You know, yeah. Every now and then I'll pick up the fretless, but I love the Warwick. Jack Bruce played a Warwick too. Yes, he did. Yes, he right. did. Yeah, yeah, for many years. Yeah, okay. so I love Warwicks. 
we still have and the there's base. There's not a lot of us that do. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I was in um, a band with a woman named Robin Beck, and she was very, very popular in Europe. So I had a few different Warwicks, and this streamer series is, and I had a fretless streamer, and uh, really a, a wonderful sounding instrument. They're well built. They use beautiful wood, or they used to. I don't know how, where they're getting their tropical hardwood now, but man, the ones they built are gorgeous. And- yeah. Brass frets. Yeah, nice yeah. weight. The weight distribution is ergonomically, you know, it's, it's not. They're well, well balanced. That's yeah. true. My only thing is I prefer my bass is passive now. So uh, it's I also think you're, yeah, such, you're such an aggressive that. person, David, that you would, you would, you would prefer a passive. It's bass. true. Well, I'm passive aggressive. That's, that's basically <laughs> it. <laughs> you guys are like a, a horse belt team. Yes, you? we do. <laughs> that's it. Without the borscht, unfortunately. But uh, all right. Well, Stanley, thanks for being on the show. You are in a very high esteemed uh, league of bass players. We talked to some of our heroes. We had Leo Lyons on. Um, Tell me more about, before you go, Larry Grenadier, what's his solo album called? It's called The Gleaners. Gleaners. um, I'll send you a link to our podcast and our videos with him. Yeah, I mean, I I feel fortunate. I am in rarefied air with some of these people you've mentioned. You and me both. And and you know what? Maybe we'll have you and Larry on a show together because a lot of times we get bass players from different walks of life to get together. And yeah, definitely. We definitely have you and Larry on. He he started off as an electric bass player. You know, I hear a very precocious style with him i'm sure yeah. he knows who james jamerson is too well i'll bet you he grew up we're the same age so he had to have learned a few licks from frampton comes alive because we all had to that was you know that was a rite of passage like david you had to learn humble pie at fillmore i had to learn that's right frampton comes alive so now i've got to learn the entire um uh frampton comes alive thing for this thing with peter Barron. is peter is frampton going to show up and you know give it his stamp I, of if approval he's on tour i don't think so i yeah. i, I, I don't yeah think he's so. out he's well, I know he's going to show, or at least he's given his blessing to the Humble Pie Legacy thing. Yeah. Yeah. And why not? Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think Jim's probably a much better um, component of that, you know, than just having a lead singer up front. I think it's a smarter visual, too. Jim's a really good guitar player, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I went on your site and I was listening to the vinyl um, machine. And when he when his name came in, I oh, that's the guy who's doing it. He's a perfect choice. Yeah. He is really. We were lucky to get him. And I hope we get a gig and actually have something to do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with me both. So, all right. All right, Stanley, thanks for talking. We'll let you know when this airs and we'll... Send you all the links. And I'll send you that. We'll send you that Larry Grenadier stuff. Great. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I really All right. Thanks this. for being a guest. Yeah, pleasure right. meeting you. Peace Bye-bye out. Now. Bye-bye. All right, David. Fabulous conversation with Mr. Stanley Sheldon. Let's talk about the Stanley Sheldon playlist, which you have so expertly curated. Before we get into the songs we're using, yes. uh, one of the things that we cannot do on our podcast is play music. So Tom and I, in our infinite wisdom, decided to put together playlists of all the songs we've played on the show, which is www.cygnusradio.com. So if you go to our podcast and click on playlists, it will send you to Tidal.com. Why do we use Tidal.com? Confidentially, folks, it sounds better than Spotify. Yes, it does. It's a better quality show. With that in mind, if you click on that playlist for Stanley Sheldon, voila! 
you're going to hear Tommy Bolin doing Flying Fingers. Yeah. Jaco Pistorius doing Donna Lee. Pat Metheny doing Midsummer's Night Dream. Coupled by Peter Frampton, Do You Feel Like I Do? I Give You Money. Then we talk a little bit about Rocco, and we got What Is Hip? Then we talk a little bit about Elton John's live album, and we do Amarina. Ooh. Then we talk about the wonderful drummer from Peter Frampton's band, John C. Omis, and we come up with a Buzzy Linhart tune by the imitable Fred Neal called The Bag I'm In. Yeah. And then we close that with a couple other songs with Stanley and Peter, which is Won't You Be My Friend and I Can't Stand It No More. All right. Now, David, you you played in a Peter Frampton repertory ensemble with uh, Peter Barron, and you had to learn some of yes, Sheldon's line. To relate that experience to us, David. After looking at a number of the recordings that Stanley did, it became obvious that, well, I better get myself a fretless four-string bass. Mm-hmm. Because as you guys know, I play six string and I'm proud of it. So I picked up this Tony Franklin fretless bass. And I got to tell you something. Fender has done a remarkable job. The neck is fantastic. The body is fantastic. However, me being me, I changed the pickups. I changed the tuning machines. I changed the bridge. I even changed the, the tip of the toggle switch. And I even changed the back plate. Why? Because that's what I do. Because I just like basses to be mine. In any event, the bass sounded great. The thing about Stanley is he was not a slider. So ultimately, you play as precisely as possible. And if the guitar player is in tune, no one blames the bass player. (laughs) Yeah, Stanley was that type of guy, right? He was not a glissando. Uh, He didn't overuse the glissando, which a lot of fretless bass players tend to do. But Stanley was pretty much on target. And it certainly had an R&B feel, as did Rick Wills, another friend of the show, who Stanley replaced after Rick Wills shot his mouth off about uh, the quality of Peter Frampton's lyrics. So if you listen... Well, you wonder why people don't realize that it's very, very possible that there's an open mic around. Think about all of the open mic faux pas since the Rick Wills incident. Yeah. From politicians to celebrities, every imbecile on the planet. Yes, David. And remember, no matter who you vote for, the government always gets in, right? (laughs) Amen to that. that. And of course, uh, I think he mentions that uh, Kenny Passarelli, another fretless uh, pioneer, actually recommended Stanley Sheldon for the gig. But of course, you heard that on the show. But let's get to our Stanley Sheldon playlist, shall we? Hey, and folks, next week, We've got a very special show with a very special individual, pianist Matthew Shipp. What's very interesting about it, we spent more time talking about wrestling and boxing than music, which is kind of an interesting go, but that's what you come to expect from Thomas and myself. There you go. Notes from an artist, notes from a wrestler. All right, let's get to Stanley Sheldon. See you next week. (laughs) 